Okay, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Baraki. I'm Dr. Feigenbaum. This is the second part of our question and answer series. Austin, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing okay. Uh, I hope I'm coming across loud and clear over there. <laughs> it is possible that Austin has contracted chipmunk's disease. Now, if you're not familiar with chipmunk's disease, what it is <laughs> is you have two novices when it comes to audio and visual visual uh, technology and uh sometimes your mic makes you sound like a chipmunk austin i think has a severe case uh <laughs> terminal this terminal we just called a palliative care console <laughs> and i think we're gonna put them on hospice so yeah i don't know what to do about it but we're just gonna run with it because we want to deliver this content you know what i mean i would like to point out that austin indeed does sound like this on a day-to-day basis <laughs> <laughs> And his wife, Lorraine, uh, graciously puts up with it. Um, So on the tap today, we're going to talk about nutrition, and we're also going to talk about miscellaneous questions. So we'll start with the miscellaneous questions, jump right into it, and then we'll finish up with nutrition. All right. So, Austin, same format as last time. I will ask you the question, you will respond, and then we'll switch it up for the nutrition section. Uh, first, First question by Lactate is Love. I'm currently studying physical therapy, and since I've been reading starting strength material, I find it hard to believe my PT course content. Smart guy. Do you guys have any advice on how to become a decent PT? Question mark. Dr. Yes. So there fortunately are uh, starting to be more and more PTs who are interested in uh, training and in uh, actually providing useful stresses to their patients, stresses that can result in um recovery and adaptation, uh, i.e. useful adaptation, typically in the context of, um, you know, increasing physical strength in their patients for rehabilitation purposes. So I think if you're already reading our material, that's a good start. Make sure you thoroughly understand the concept of stress recovery and adaptation as a, as a model in terms of how you can apply it to exercise selection, how you can apply it to programming, and how you can apply it in a rehab context. And uh, we have a few physical therapists in our organization and there are more and more who are uh, you know good resources for you to look into and they're pretty easy to find in the in the barbell and rehab world so i would i would i would start out there yeah i, I agree i think uh, you know something that you and i had talked about i believe it was last week or the week before was that you know things like chiropractic medicine are actually at odds with our training model uh and what i what i mean by that is you know we kind of preach this stress recovery adaptation cycle being germane to the process of getting better physically, right? And I don't think that PT is explicitly against that. Uh, In fact, their model is built on the same thing. It's just the methods that you use uh, in order to drive that. So it'd be very hard to do with like a, uh, you know, band assisted or band resisted sort of, you know, external rotation against, you know, uh, a half a pound of resistance or something like that. But, you know, that model uh, works with pressing or, or other exercises uh, and training training stuff that we do, uh, whereas chiropractic medicine, uh, which requires a little more length of education and perhaps potentially more cost, uh, does not necessarily comport with those those ideals. So I think that it is possible to become a decent PT. Uh, you're, just the modalities that you use for your rehab uh, are going to be different than likely what you learn. Unless, for instance, unless you happen to go to, what, where's Patrizio at? Adelphi? Is he at Adelphi? Adelphi University, that's right. Dude, I just can't get over your voice right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. God damn it. <laughs> So I, yeah, I think you could do it. And, you know, ultimately that would be a big service because I think you probably run into the same issue I do, which is 
if you need to refer to PT for whatever reason, you you don't really have good options uh, uh, unless you happen to know personally know a the special pers- therapist, right? Yeah. 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 And so I would encourage you also to just be aware of the uh, choosing wisely guidelines that are, that were put out by the American Physical Therapy Association. I think number one of which is to not underdose your strength training interventions, particularly for your older patients. Uh, and that just, again, comports with you need to deliver an adequate stress in order if you're going to get anything useful out of it, rather than wasting 12 weeks doing three sets of 10 on the therapy band, like I see a lot of my patients end up getting when I, when I have to refer them, because that's what I have available to me. Yeah, one one more interesting note is, uh, on your personal opinion, your professional opinion, how about that? Uh, when is it appropriate to order inpatient physical therapy? I have to do it all the time. Oh, no, no, I, I know. I Look, if you get into the hospital and you're like, you know, a human, you're a carbon-based life form. That's res- placement, man, placement. That's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think if you have to have a formal evaluation for placement or for DME, uh, durable medical equipment, then sure, ordering PT is useful. But actual acute rehab inpatient, um, unless you're at an orthopedic facility that just, you know, you're going to keep patients for a long time, which is not, <laughs> you know, that usually that'd be a, a sniff or a skilled rehab kind of situation. Um, ordering PT in the hospital, just not, I mean, we keep su- sending papers back and forth to each other, like <laughs> inpatient PT <laughs> of no, you know, no utility. Basically. There was the, well, well, there's the article that I cited in the previous one that I wrote um, that was related to hospital acquired deconditioning and kind of the role that physical therapy has to play in it. And they're in a position where they can do a lot of good. And of course, they do help our patients start moving and that might pre- pre- prevent some complications that we would otherwise see. But I think there's a lot more uh, potential there, as as was elucidated in that article. So it's not just our opinion. It was actually an article put out in the American Physical Therapy Association Journal. So it's not just our bias that's saying this. Notice the American Physical Therapy Association Journal even said this. Hospital-acquired deconditioning. Yeah. Which, which is different. Better. Which is different than critical illness myopathy, but that's for another that's for another yep. another podcast. Okay, David Blackstock asks, "What are your plans as far as coaches and doctors? If a time comes that coaching slash seminars are enough to sustain your income, will you ever stop being doctors?" Interesting timing for this question. So this is actually one of my clients. I've been coaching him. He was my first ever coaching client, I think, and we we're still going strong. Um, let me get this cat out of the way. <laughs> so. Our Cat, plans. Um, cats are, are associated with chipmunk uh, disease. That's, just... that's, this is true. Yeah. So our, our our plans are. I feel like they're complicated and they're changing very frequently. Like there's new developments between both of our plans happening all the time. Uh, and so, me personally speaking about on my own behalf here, if time comes when coaching seminars are enough to sustain income, I would not plan to stop being a doctor. I feel like I really enjoy the balance that I get between the two fields. Uh, I couldn't be a coach full time or own a gym by myself and do all the coaching for it, and uh, because I would feel like I would get burnt out. And probably the same thing would apply if I do really intense, uh, you know, like if I was to become an intensivist or something like that. I could not handle that. Um, so I really like the balance I get. I see full spectrum of uh, illness to wellness, and I see, um, you know, complex medical issues that I get to think through and treat. Uh, but I also see the highly motivated patients who come to me and they want to get better and they want to get stronger and take care of themselves and. Uh, you know, be models of healthy aging. So I enjoy the balance. In terms of what exactly my future practice is going to look like, again, that's this is all dynamic, and I feel like Jordan will have an interesting answer that I'll let him talk about, and that might be, uh, you know, an interesting collaboration in the future. Thank you for this interesting console. Uh, I yeah. So I guess you know, from a semantic standpoint, 
you'd have to define what does being a doctor mean. I mean, if you're talking about working in a clinic in a hospital, uh, I don't plan on ever doing that. So that's never really been my ever really been my plan. Mainly because there's no current uh, healthcare job, a doctor job that actually fits what I want to do, which is mostly uh, preventative medicine or health health promotion in the community. So, um, <clears throat> in any event, my income is what it is, and you know I don't think that necessarily needs to be public. Uh, but <laughs> but at the same t- at the same time, being a family medicine physician would not that would be that would be. Uh, a decrease. So I don't, I don't necessarily want to want to do that in, in any event. I, I do like the skill set you get get from being a physician. I certainly like working on that higher level uh, cerebral standpoint where you have more okay. more knowledge to to help people uh, really make a difference in their health and health outcomes. Um, but I think the overall plan is to merge legitimate strength and conditioning and lifestyle interventions with westernized medicine and spread that idea uh, uh, via remote uh, direct access medicine. That's, I think, the direction I'm, I'm headed in, um, mainly because people, I get emails all the time, uh, and I feel like Donald Trump whenever I say that. I, people are telling me or people are asking me all the time. <laughs> every time I say that, or if I say, the word, if I say the word perfect or great, I just feel like, damn it. This is, um, but yeah, people people ask me all the time. You know, what is, who's a good doctor I can go see? And I'm like, I don't know who you could see over there. There's probably nobody that's going to understand your training, uh, you right. know, or be able to to, to sufficiently counsel you there. Uh, and in addition, they're only going to see you for ten minutes anyway, so you probably wouldn't get to talk about it. So I think making that available to people is going to be very useful. Um, I certainly think we still need our specialists and our intensivists and, and everything else because I you can't do that outpatient, uh, you know, right. uh, certainly remotely. Somebody's got to do it, right? Yeah, for sure. It's just not necessarily what I want to do. So I think uh, Dr. Baraki and I will both be involved in that on some on some level, um, and more more to come in the near future. It's gonna be exciting stuff, man. Changing the world. Yeah, Ch- changing the world. All right. Uh, Kern's Mark asks is, is there i'm going to say i think that he means are there are there five tips and ideologies that you would recommend for the average bloke retraining diet and health <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question i don't know really what you're looking for when you say for like an ideology but um just basic tips i feel like you're probably going to acquire a lot more than that in terms of useful tips just from listening to these podcasts but you should train uh, you should train with barbells using the methods that we describe. Your nutrition should be, uh, you know, I can say intelligently designed in line with to be a beast article. Um, that basically is, you know, will we'll do the job for most everybody. Um, take care of your sleep. Uh, don't smoke. Mm, and then, uh, you know, techniques for mental health and stress management and things like that to keep you a happy person. I think that's a reasonable set of five. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's pretty good. That's a nice set of five. Yeah, I, I probably would agree with that. Yeah, lift progressively heavier uh, progressively heavier barbell uh, or weights uh, it, with barbell training. Um, eat uh, within um, uh, the confi- the the constructs in to be a beast article, I think is, uh, is a reasonable recommendation. I would agree with that. Uh, don't smoke, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, have good interpersonal relationships, uh, and psychosocial support via those and, uh, sleep like you actually care about living for a long period of time, which brings me, yeah, exactly. Yeah. After residency, uh, later, later I'll sleep. <laughs> 
Uh, it's interesting. I was at Barbell Brigade the other day uh, deadlifting, and this guy, which is weird. So here's the thing. If you're training hard, the last thing that you want is somebody to come up to you between sets and ask you an irrelevant question. Like something, something on the lines like, Hey, what kind of, you know, uh, so when do you, when should I use straps? It's like, I don't don't care. (laughs) Yeah. Like ask me a few hours from now. Okay. Like, all right. So anyway, this guy is talking to me and, and, uh, he's like, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm studying why, uh, why humans need sleep. And I was like, you're studying why humans need sleep. He's like, oh yeah. You know, like, cause it's so weird. Why do we need to sleep? And I'm like, this seems like a something you're not really studying, you know. Like I was, seems like time that might be better spent sleeping. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I was, I was, I was about to go like, well, the reticular activating system and you know, sleep, <laughs> sleep drive is a you know, a very complex biochemical process and this and the other. And then I was like, okay, I still need a few sets left, so I'm just gonna stop. <laughs> so I'm just gonna stop. Yeah, that's interesting. But I think those that's a good set of five. So training, food, psychosocial support, don't smoke have a lot of sex is that yeah yeah okay matt pasqualone asks uh when your patients are in need of therapy can you describe what exactly you would look for when recommending an outpatient facility what would an ideal facility uh run by a starting strength coach look like if at all possible and practical Mm. so this is not a question i'll admit that i've thought about very much be just because it's not something that i have access to and so it's not something that i strike out and search for uh, to find because really, it, to my knowledge at this point, it doesn't exist. I know of good therapists out there who are you know, training their, uh, training their patients and helping them get stronger. But in terms of uh, you know, a facility, what it would look like, well, it would be focused on strength and conditioning really in a very similar way to a gym that would, you know, would look when we're training healthy people to get stronger. Um, it might have to have some additional equipment here and there that, you know, would really be at the discretion of an educated uh, and intelligent therapist in this uh, in this kind of uh, stress adaptation recovery model. But, uh, you know, it would basically need to look pretty similar to a strength and conditioning facility. Yeah, I imagine, you know, something like horn strength and conditioning with maybe a, a few more tools, uh, yeah. you know, uh, or, or exercise, uh, uh, training training tools in there. Attached. Thanks to accommodate for special situations. Yeah, yeah. attached to, you know, four, a four-room uh, clinic with the procedure room and, uh, you know, a really nice atrium with a very <laughs> fancy entryway so people feel like, you know, you're walking into someplace nice. And uh, yeah, you've got a you've got a, a good PT or, or uh, in there, and you got a good uh, a good psychiatrist uh, there as well. And uh, yeah, you know, I think ultimately that's that's that that's the facility. So that's Barbell Medicine, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the storefront. Also, also we'll sell, have a lot of Gains RX as, as well. It's the whole line. Um, okay. Bacon is rad. Would you and Jordan ever consider running a clinical trial and teach people with back pain to squat and deadlift and check the results in six months? Or a similar one measuring the degree of insulin resistance before and after a one-year starting strength program? Uh, I'll answer quickly. Uh, No, I would never consider doing that because it sounds like a huge time sink. Well, not, not that it sounds like that is a huge time sink. And for me, the opportunity cost is too great for the impact that that would make in the academic field. So mm-hmm. e- even if you and I just did this six month or one year, huge multi-center, hundreds of thousands of patients or whatever, the actual impact that that would have on getting people under the bar 
is minuscule compared to opening that facility that I just talked about. And making it happen. Yeah, yeah, and making that profitable, available, and then open sourcing that. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I don't, I'm not a, not particularly interested in clinical research. However, with that said, and this isn't actually something that I haven't even told you yet. I just recently got contacted by a, um, a professor in the uh, nursing department at a university in Florida, and he is particularly interested in our model of training. And he's actually wanting to run a clinical trial. He wants to start it out actually like a, maybe a pilot or a proof of concept kind of thing in healthy individuals. And then uh, based on the results of that, move on to people with various medical issues. And uh, so I'm uh, helping, trying to help them out in terms of from as like a medical consultant and starting current coach in trying to make this thing happen. So we'll see what ends up coming of that. But me as a PI or you as a PI on one of these studies, anything going to happen. We, and, and, and besides the whole deal about measuring insulin resistance in patients, but um, yeah, we're just not going to do that. I'd rather just coach thousands more people uh, in, you know, in that. Time. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it, the, uh, our school, our skills are better used elsewhere. Uh, and then, I mean, I, I don't actually think you need the six month trial on back pain. We already know that, that training, you know, helps people with back pain do better on virtually every objective measurement, even if it's a, you know, uh, so, so, uh, and the insulin resistance thing is, uh, nuanced. Uh, I would yes. also, I would also like to commend myself for just setting a PR. It's been 22 minutes and that's the first time I said the word nuanced. <laughs> so <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> PRs today. All right. So we will now move into the nutrition section, which is going to be a lightning round. So we've got some nutrition questions. Let's hope. I haven't read do, these. Do, these so, are... so do you want do you want me to lightning round you on these? You can, and if you have things to add, I think. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So Instakilo91 asks, I'm curious, is saturated fat stuff blown way out of proportion? I remember reading an article with good evidence that dietary intake of cholesterol does not affect blood cholesterol levels. Subsequently... Uh... Blah, 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 blah. Now rumor has it FDA is in talks to remove cholesterol from the nutrition facts. Can we foresee a fim- similar fate for saturated fats? Uh, yeah, so I'm unsure if that uh, movement within the FDA is actually occurring. It, I would, yeah. yeah, I doubt it. And then I don't know if I would agree that, say, the dietary intake does not affect cholesterol levels because it certainly can. It's a small effect, but to say it doesn't affect it, that would be just wrong and certainly said saturated fat or dietary fat intake doesn't affect blood cholesterol levels would be an incorrect statement as well uh to the effect that that affects your cardiovascular risk profile is multifactorial and i think that's ultimately where the rub is if you are just making the association that eating more fat puts you at higher risk for cardiovascular disease i think that's oversimplification and that's mainly what people have been you know clamoring against so ultimately what you're going to see is more and more research come out better and better risk stratification of people uh with uh for for who a further cardiac workup is is needed but as far as what you should do practically i think that the idea of eating a whole lot of saturated fat (laughs) as far as your your fat sources go is probably uh not not the best management and that doesn't mean avoid saturated fat it just means that i don't think you should go out of your way to say well it needs to all be coconut oil or butter or <laughs> blend it in my coffee yeah exactly yeah there's, <laughs> there's been case reports that have come out that people doing doing that have had dyslipidemic changes uh, that were yeah. previously had normal lipid panels now i'm not surprised <laughs> yeah to the effect that that actually changes their cardiovascular risk profile like you know we don't know yeah it's kind of funny in the same way that that you know people clamoring about dietary fat causing heart disease and stuff like that directly unidirectional 100% of the time 
idea was an oversimplification. Uh, lots of people reading too many blogs out there and not the actual primary literature are going in the other direction and saying, uh, no matter what I put, put in my mouth doesn't actually affect my cardiovascular disease. Or fats do nothing, but really if I have 10 grams of sugar in a day, all of a sudden I'm going to thrombose all three of my coronary vessels. You know, it's like yeah. kind of ridiculous. And, and so. get diabetes at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, any sugar, you're, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Jake Lift asks, thoughts on ketogenic diets for strength training? Yeah, I think that's a terrible idea for performance. I certainly think that uh, a few in the strength conditioning field with decent-sized audiences have been putting out uh, sort of anecdotal evidence that, oh, I've been doing keto and things are going great. And I think that that's ultimately short-term. It's like, oh, things haven't gone poorly. And then also these are people who are well-trained previously. And you're sort of seeing, hey, this person's well-trained previously. There's multi, there's a lot of factors that go into their performance on any given day or at any given event. And that sometimes doing a ketogenic diet or whatever version of the ketogenic diet they're doing doesn't necessarily tank them. All right. But what you're not seeing is people who are starting out untrained, doing a ketogenic diet, making the types of improvements that we uh, we want to see. Um, and, and, and the, the, the additional layer to that is why are you doing a ketogenic diet in the first place? The supposition is that you're going to lose body fat faster, which is not supported by evidence. Okay. When you look at long-term data, the body fat, you know, and weight loss at a, at a year is there's no significant difference. All right. And then further, if you're losing weight, guess what you're not doing? Gaining muscle. Yeah. It's not happening. So it's not like you're not, there's not this, there's no secret trick. Okay. Like there's just, there's no, that one that weird one trick, weird trick. <laughs> yeah. That one weird trick to getting, you know, big jacked and lean is to train really hard for a long period of time, eat like you give a damn and then, you know, don't get married. <laughs> I'm doing this, all right so far. Yeah. This is why, you know, when people ask Austin, who's, who's more jacked than Austin, uh, Austin just says, well, I squat more than he does. And then that's, <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Right. Yeah. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> all right. Uh, uh Dear Dr. Beasts, uh, hey. after training with Colin Ragaman in the UK, I noticed after about a year my Crohn's disease flare-ups reduced to practically zero. In that time, my body weight went from 70 to 85 kilos. What are some hypotheses as to the mechanism for reduction in flares? Improved carbohydrate tolerance? I don't think that, you know, carbohydrate tolerance, well, that's kind of a vague term, but you could make the argument. I know people with Crohn's who have, uh, you know, uh, comorbid diabetes, whatever, not that it's the same mechanism, but if you have diabetes and also Crohn's, you end up, you do worse just from basically any uh, objective measurement. I would suggest that actually the uh, physiological milieu that you're placed in from training is likely beneficial from a Crohn's standpoint uh, or, or just, you know, uh, uh, inflammatory <laughs> bowel. I think that's. I, I think that's the answer. Is talking about like the myokines and stuff like that yeah, that are coming a, out now as as improving the inflammatory kind of environment in the body. Yeah, that'd be my suspicion. Yep, I would say that too. And then, in addition, you know, you probably also learned trigger foods or trigger sort of activities that make the Crohn's get worse, and maybe you're just avoiding those, and you're not necessarily able to to see that unbiased because you're like, oh, th- what do you mean? This is what I do. And so yeah. I, I think those two things are probably my biggest uh, things. Yeah. Cool. All right. Taylor B081, have you had success getting your patients to train? If so, can you share your approach? As a physician myself, I'm always looking for ways to help my patients improve their health. Um, I Yeah. So I have actually not had decent success, mainly because I, it's very difficult to do in my situation. I'm seeing mostly people like post-discharge clinic or uh, folks who are not necessarily interested in training. You know, um, That being said, my I have had 
what I would consider above average success uh, talking to people about training because I, one, I actually do it every visit that I see somebody. I actually talk about exercise because it's important to me. And two, what I'm recommending is this sort of training and I give people resources. So as far as what my percentage conversion rate is, I'm not sure. Uh, and I think ultimately I would say my limitation is time, you know, because I'm still, uh, uh, unfortunately stuck in this sort of, I can only see you for a certain amount of time because we have yep. more, you know, I have to go precept you with somebody who doesn't care about your training, who'd rather wants to make sure that, you know, you're, you've had a, your yearly lipid panel so we can make sure that you're on the correct dose of statin, which I'm not saying is unimportant. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, at, on some level, on some level, uh, uh, we just need to stop stop worrying about the numbers as much as actually behavior changes. Because the reason why the person is going to get placed on the statin in the first place may be because they're not, <laughs> you know, be, yeah. be doing this stuff. So, Yeah, I agree. My patient population is, I mean, I'm in a similar situation, my current patient population. So um, it's challenging. Just got to keep hammering away. And, you know, I, I suppose that if you, if you have X percent as a conversion rate, then the more people you end up doing it to, the more people you end up hopefully uh, getting to getting to help. But exactly. more of the people that come to me, you know, contact me as you know for coaching. Um, even those who haven't been coaching, who haven't been training before, that's kind of where most of my training um, kind of focus is. Yeah, yeah, because and you're already getting people who are basically interested in, in training. Yeah, I think anybody it selects. Yeah, I think that you you know anybody you get who's open to it in the office was already open to exercise in the first place. And now you're telling them, oh, they, I need to do strength training. Yeah. And they're like, but I thought I was supposed to walk. So I never say, yeah, just walk more because that's bullshit. Yeah, just, just spend a little more time gardening. That'll yeah. Be the yeah, if you future. garden or play golf or you, you know. Was that a cattail? <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> All right, let's bang these last ones out. All right. Uh, Eddie73, uh, early morning training, peaceful, uninterrupted gains or road to the chiropractor because my spine hasn't woken up. I'm not familiar with the research on the circadian rhythm of the spine. I suppose <laughs> there's some... Cerebral <laughs> amnesia. Yeah, yeah. There's some, uh, you know, connection between your reticular activating system and, uh, and the <laughs> intervertebral uh, discs. That, that being said, I think the biggest thing is hydration status, uh, your uh, uh, sort of how aroused you are for training. So I think we have some pretty decent evidence that about seven, eight hours post after waking up that your your performance level is its highest due to a whole source of factors. Just, just again, you're you're more awake, uh, you've been well fed, you're well hydrated in general. Um, that being said, if you have to train first thing in the morning, you don't have a yeah. choice. What are you going to do? Not train? That's took the words right out of my mouth. All right, next question. Dave, J. David Thompson, what effect does early morning workout have? Uh, I kind of, we kind of just answered this, right? Yeah, eat some toes, BCA, start training around 4.30 a.m. Has your body started absorbing any food? Yes. Uh, yeah. And you're just setting up for failure. I mean, no, I would if you can train at 4 p.m. instead, that's probably a better situation from a performance standpoint. But not training is the worst option. So if that's when yeah. you have to train, go for it. Exactly. Yep. Pope, Pope Scott, question. In attempting to get my protein levels high on a daily basis, 200 grams per day, I'm also getting high cholesterol levels as a negative side effect. Any suggestions? Um, 
Without knowing the exact numbers, you know, that's got to be hard to comment on. Um, there's some evidence suggesting that people doing a bunch of whey uh, actually have an increase in cholesterol levels. Um, in addition, depending on what your protein sources are, you may, you know, the di- dietary cholesterol thing has just a, a small effect. I would also be wondering if you're gaining weight and then what, you know, sort of your calorie intake is as, as a whole, in addition to your family history of just, you know, uh, cholesterol. So if it's not if it's not above normal, I this is not... Just forget a, everything. A I just, yeah, forget everything I just <laughs> said, and don't worry about it. So, okay, if yeah. it's going up a little bit and it's still within normal range, again, just stop. Just you rewind. Take back the last forty-five seconds of your life. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So that the, my things would be: if you're doing a lot of whey and your uh, your cholesterol levels are above normal, then you could uh, cut the whey out for a little bit. Uh, if you're uh, otherwise above normal and um, that's a new development for you then i would start looking at at you know refined sugar intake making sure your fiber intake is on point Uh, there's also some evidence actually that 20 grams of soy protein per day actually decreases ldl which is uh, yeah and no it doesn't increase your estrogen levels repeat to 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 preempt that question for the next one yeah because it doesn't to any clinically significant effect no you're not going to get boobs I mean, maybe you will, but I again, I think I accidentally. Hey, hey, man! I accidentally ate a soybean once, and now I have giant, giant breasts. Well, I again, I think that would be good to see on the internet. There was actually an article in Men's Health about these people. This guy who was drinking like a liter or something or a gallon of soy milk a day, and he got, said he got boobs from it. And I'm like, you sure you just probably because he got fat. You got fat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question. Ahmed 725, how do you approach training during a month of fasting, Ramadan, from sunrise to sunset? I, that is uh, a terrible situation. I've, I've, so I don't practice uh, any sort of religion. I've not, I'm not, I don't do Ramadan. However, uh, don't lie. I was, don't lie. Yeah, when, when I was in college and uh, swimming, one of my teammates was Egyptian, and he would practice Ramadan every year. And typically, the month would fall during our training season because it would be. You know, uh, August on the early end, sometimes in the fall, and uh, and so basically, what the team would do because you know, college varsity sport, we're in the pool nine times a week or something like that, in the weight room three times a week, just spending twenty to thirty hours a week training, and he can't eat from sunrise to sunset, and so it was horrible. He would lose like surprise. I was impressed that he would only lose like seventeen to twenty five pounds during that period of time. I would expect him to lose a lot more, um, and so basically, one teammate. Uh, every single day would like pick a day to do it with him just to kind of like, you know, show of solidarity, like we're gonna, you know, and I remember doing it. It was just like, I was absolutely ravenous for the entire day, just trying to like shut my stomach up with like tons of extra water. I was probably putting myself into like, yeah, your hyponatremia or something like that. So, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty rough situation. Uh, it's certainly far from anything that could remotely be considered optimal for training. Uh, you're going to lose a bunch of weight. You're probably not going to gain significant muscle. Not going to make significant progress in the gym. Um, yeah, it's just not a good deal. But if, but you got to do what you got to do. You know, I yeah. suppose if you're going to practice, then I suppose yeah, at that time you should just you're going to have to do a lot of calorie intake at night. And I think that you know bears repeating that you should probably be, tr- be tracking that because using oh I'm not hungry anymore. That's not that's not going to cut it during that situation because you're just going to undereat. Uh, yeah. likely have to like bolus meals every hour until you go to bed after sunset just to get enough calories in. maybe even wake up before the sun rises and get some more in takes it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I have a few questions for you, Dr. B. How are you going to do this to me? What are you, what, what are you, uh, what are you reading these days? This is important. 
What am I reading? Yep. I'm currently reading lots of material on patellofemoral pain syndrome uh, in terms of medical stuff, and then I'm also reading a book called How Doctors Think. Ooh, how is that? I have it. It's good. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, good so far. It's okay. stuff that, interestingly, we were trained a good amount in the details of this book uh, through our training at EVMS. So shout out to EVMS for giving us some good teaching on that stuff. EVMS, I don't know if you know this, is a for-profit institution. It's a degree mill. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> Facebook. No. Yeah, okay. Well, good. I'm excited to read that. I'm reading The Upside of Irrationality, which basically just questions how we think about everything. So anything, yeah, we're super biased. We are poor predictors of... <laughs> really yeah really everything so every time you know it's like oh what's your clinical what's your clinical impression and i'm like i i have one but i'm pretty sure it's wrong just in general yeah. <laughs> like and whatever your clinical impression is probably wrong too um, okay other interest another question this pat in the past week what has been your best moment from training um hmm so as some people who have been aware of my training might know, I was unable to train the bench particularly heavy um, for quite a while in the past year due to what I suspect was some sort of tendinopathy in my armpit uh, that got pissed off and was hard to rehab for a while. So my bench appears to finally be coming back online. Uh, I titrated up the volume pretty gradually. Uh, and then finally this past week, um, my first two days of training, uh, I think I benched something like 12 sets on the bench on Monday and then like a few more on the subsequent day. So my volume tolerance is going back up without any discomfort on the bench. So I'm happy about that. How many chiropractor visits does that take? Uh, 52. 52. You did a <laughs> weekly for a year. Okay. Yeah. I, pre I prepaid. They gave me a little discount. You prepaid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You paid them all. <laughs> uh, mine would have to be, well, that 675 pull was... Uh... That was disgusting. It was really nice. And the good thing is, there was a girl looking at me the whole time. Like, I saw her out of my periphery, and I was like, I think she was impressed. <laughs> she was impressed. She, yeah. All right. All right, last question. We both do Instagram Lives pretty regularly. All right. What has been your favorite or best question, if you can recall, hmm. from your... Um, yeah. By the way, you know about William Howard Taft official, right? He's a pretty funny guy. Yeah. Well, the screen name alone. Yeah. He's like, oh, to 17 checking in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I got the one question that was interesting, made me think a little bit, was what was the most terrifying thing that you learned in medical school oh. to turn this to turn this into a next level, second order question? What do you what would you, what do you think you would say? I can tell you my answers. If you it wasn't that what I learned. It was just the experience. So it was on uh, surgery third year, and I had a lady with Fournier's gangrene. Which, if you don't know, so Fournier, yeah, so Fournier's is a uh, uh, basically Fournier was a guy uh, dermatologist slash syphilis like he's a syphilis expert, right? And he basically thought that any disease you had in the genital area was a you know a sinful you you got it because you were sinning like you were masturbating which is obviously a sin uh and in any, in any event it's basically flesh-eating bacteria of of the groin and uh i'll never forget the smell of that it's like it's like barbecue lays that had somehow gone rotten and i'm pretty sure that barbecue lays don't go rotten that's just not a thing they do and you're that one. yeah yeah uh so that was the grossest that would, you know yeah. I ended up answering. I ended up narrowing it down to three things, and you see what you think about them. Number one was the vivid image that I remember from pathology, when we were learning about worms, 
and it was a picture of like an eight-year-old kid face down on the table, facing away from you with like 300 worms just like blowing out their backside. That is was the, one that's never. Is this left. the pinworm? The, with the yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's pinworms. No, it was like ascariasis or something. It was like a legit, like a big worm that oh, you could see okay. like grossly. Yeah, and then the other ones were locked-in syndrome. That's another terrifying one. Oh, just yeah. the idea, the whole idea of it. And then the other one was the idea of um, like getting like an ocular melanoma, like in the back of your eye, just like this completely lethal cancer that'll like, come out of nowhere. You didn't do anything to get it, and it'll kill you. That was the other terrifying thing. So, on that note, <laughs> have a nice week, guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. So we just PR, though, forty-two minutes better than an hour and. 40 yeah so i think we'll we'll cut it here uh looks like the next uh podcast will likely address these injury questions uh with your pt friend derek what's his last name derek miles we're gonna have a guest on the show next time derek miles is basically the human repository of pubmed uh, effectively if you if you say a word it's an auto search in his head and he ends up spitting out all this data and we'll be we'll be fortunate to have him um so in any event thanks for joining us here on the barbell medicine podcast with Dr. Baraki, uh, graciously joining me, and we'll uh, catch you guys next week. Great. See you guys later.